Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Going good. Things are going good right now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, oh, look at that. I just started in the... In the Burner came on. Can you hear that? Holy cow. What is that from? I didn't even run the hot water yet today. Oh, I'm sorry. What a way to start out the podcast. Thanks so much for coming, everyone. Welcome to the Epic Narrative. Here we go. So we're, we are in Second Samuel chapter 8, and maybe chapter 9, we'll see, as we know. We never know what I'm going to prattle on about, but... Generally speaking, that's our that's our look at uh, ver- uh, uh, passages today. But here's the deal: the overall concept here that that we're going after, and and why we're pushing through this, as I've said before, is because these are these are where David's life gets layered. And when we jump in, because the, the next chapter is Bathsheba, that we we we've got to have you've got to have these layers for Bathsheba to make sense. So many people simplify the story of Bathsheba and and make it they just I just uh, it's tough to do it justice without all this detail. That's what I think. That's what I think. And there's and because of the way I am wired there is often internally struggles for me when people paint with such a broad brush and they don't bring in all of these layers of details because life is more complicated than just bullet points on an outline which is what as i've said before which is what and how the scripture is written it's meant to be said in in a story form it's it's designed to be a narrative and the oral tradition of telling stories is what the rabbinical uh, trainings were all about. Yes, they had to know what was written. They had to know it, memorize it, be able to copy it, be able to identify. I mean, they were, yes, they, they know the word, but they were trained in story because that's what the word was about. Anyway, so here we are. It says, uh, just so you know, these, these couple of verses, like they, they, it's at some at some point they're kind of overviews of all that's going on while David like it covers years of David's life and they're written in these kind of quick uh, paragraphs so that so that when you're telling the story you don't forget you don't forget all of the uh, all the nuances that were going on around him. It says, so for, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, in the course of time, dun, 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 what is that? Man, those, that's years. But it says, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took uh, these, cap, these big cities from their control. It gave him a coastal, coastal uh, access and trade routes. It, it's awesome. He defeated the Moabites. And and he did uh, he did some things there that uh, man brutal. 
As I said before, I don't think everything David did was sanctioned by God. I don't think he was like, yes, you're acting just like me when you measure out, make them all lay down in every, every, uh, you know, six or eight feet, you kill that person. Like it's, uh, I don't know. Like that's, that's brutal. That's brutal war stuff. And war is brutal. And David knew how to be brutal. David, you have any, I mean, just once again, how complicated is David? He's, he's, he is an incredible tactician when it comes to battle plans. He is a brutal warlord when it comes to subduing enemies that refuse to lay down. He brings them into submission. That's what he does here to the Moabites. And remember, the Moabites are where he left his mother and father. He never saw them again. Remember that. Remember that was that was good grief. That was almost a year ago, right? I don't know. I don't know. We're thirty. I don't. I don't know where. Where do we leave them off? At least at least twenty twenty weeks ago, I think. Oh my gosh. He left them with the Moabites, and yet he had to do battle with them and and force him into submission. Well, he did force him into he didn't have to what he did was brutal. He was a brutal warlord. He was a he was a brilliant tactician, uh uh war tactician and strategist strategist strategist. Thank you so much. That engineer, he knows where I'm going sometimes. He gives me words. And then uh and then of course Logistically, he puts together, uh, you know, a government that, man, is is so unique compared to the rest of the world as a king. He puts together he puts together a government with powerful leaders around him, not not weak-minded, power-hungry leaders, not arrogant uh, mini dictators that are live in fear of the king and do what they're told so that they can continue to be rich, enriched, and in essence work for bribes. I mean, it's what he does when, when you look at, at just his generals alone, Joab and, um, and his brother uh, uh, Abishai. Br- these guys are, are brilliant. They are powerful military leaders. And David has them in in his cabinet. He has them as part of his government. These are guys that could have easily turned the army against David and immediately taken over the country because they're powerful leaders. They have they have huge influence over a, over you know a, a major portion of the government. But David keeps them. He doesn't kill them off when he becomes king, which most kings would do. Most most uh, sorry. Culturally speaking, when a king who wasn't part of the previous uh, administration's family line, when he would take over, he would kill, you know, uh, he would kill off the most powerful leaders that came up with him, the military leaders, the the governmental leaders, the people that that helped him win the win the the battle, so to speak, and take over the throne. He would then wipe them out. Why? Because their influence 
that was so needed for them to take over was no longer necessary because the king wanted absolute control. What David's doing is so unique. He's so complicated. It's the same way with with, with his council, right? You have uh, Ahithophel, a, a, a wise uh, a wise counselor that has big influence on big families. He sends them out to all the tribes. They all know Ahithophel. They all trust Ahithophel. When he speaks, he speaks wisdom from heaven, and he speaks as the king. Like it's, and yet he's he's not in any way hindered by David. David trusts his leaders to be leaders. He doesn't he doesn't micromanage them. I mean he's he's a, and yet and yet David could. Like David's wisdom is really uh it's deep enough to do that. So as a government uh, as a government is being developed, like he is he is literally showing the world how to be a king that has the mindset of heaven to let leaders be strong let them influence people let them make uh decisions that <clears throat> that are within the principles of of the life-giving hope giving uh concepts of David's heart but David doesn't have to know all the decisions that are being made. He doesn't need to know all the people that Joab and and Abishai are uh, promoting amongst the military. David doesn't need to know where all of the 30 mighty men are at all times. He doesn't need to know the families that they're meeting with in the way that they're influencing people. He doesn't need to know where uh, Ahithophel has spent his time. Does he? He probably knows a lot about them, but he doesn't he doesn't need to know in order to control them. What he needs them to be is strong and influential because he knows their influence is going to bring a positive positive ramifications. And sometimes they're dangerous. He knows he knows that uh, Joab and Abishai run off on their own. He knows that they have diso, quote disobeyed the the directives that he's given when it comes to battle plans he knows that they've they've taken personal uh personal uh revenge right when <clears throat> i mean it was joab that killed abner without david's permission as a matter of fact he knew david didn't want jo uh abner killed and he killed him anyways because abner had killed his brother and azarel azarel yeah i'm pretty sure that was it and David, David still let him be be uh, uh, the the leader of of all the military. He left the discipline of of Joab up to God, and he said, "You know, I I I'm not going to take you out for this." He had every right to take him out, and because he's a powerful leader, he like every every other king. If they had had a you know a G G8 summit meeting, and all the kings of the world showed up, they would have all been like, "David, you're out of your mind." You can't leave Joab in that place of power. And yet he did. David was an unbelievable leader when it came to the government. David is a musician, an artist, a worship leader. He put together 
he put together a big, huge, I mean, this is huge set of, of principles around worship that literally mirror heaven. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This, this is unheard of in the world. Nobody worships their gods like David worships his. And David influences the world in the worship because he only worships one God. All the other kings of the nations, they worship multiple gods. They worship whatever God they need to get the victory, whatever that is. And if that God doesn't work, they'll go worship another one. David worships one God, and he worships 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's not some guy on a ukulele. He has basically 10,000 paid positions in the government. Now, I don't know if all 10,000 work 100% of the time in the, in the government. I have a feeling that probably not, but maybe. And this is this is a big deal, nationally speaking and internationally speaking. And then, and then David, <laughs> then David has uh, let's see, he has the worship, he has the songwriting, he has the 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 warrior mindset, he has the government going. Oh man, there was something else I was going to bring up. This is a, sorry, I'm just winging this. I, this has nothing to do with the notes that I have out for today. I just, I just, he just, it just blows my mind. Oh, uh, his family. My goodness, Bob, pay attention. Thank you. That was the, once again, the engineer in my head named Bob. <laughs> oh, it's family. I don't think, again, I don't think David did a good job on that one. And and I think I covered it last time as to why. But things are not. He he has family. He has multiple wives and concubines and lots of lots of kids everywhere. But they're not they're not a part of his world. They're not a part of his life. He's a very busy man. He definitely has that excuse as as a father. He. He's he's a complicated leader, and his wives are from all over the world. I mean, here I'll I'll we'll, we'll go through this, but basically, in chapter eight, we just see that he he beats he wins again he subdues and wins against the Philistines. He does the same thing against the Moabites. He goes after this area called Zoba which is way over by the Euphrates River, and he wins them. He wins Damascus. Ar Arminius and Anim the Ammonites, the Edomites, the, um, I mean, Philistia, um, uh, Amalek. I mean, it just goes, it's just a list. It's just a list. He just keeps winning. He keeps winning. And if he doesn't win outright battle right then then the people just s submit themselves to his leadership either way he he gets 
taxes from them. He gets slaves from them. He gets treasures from them. They're all dedicated, like he doesn't take it for his personal wealth. He dedicates it to the temple. He uses he uses the taxes and, and riches of other nations to to fund the worship that goes on in Israel. And I I know that there's something I, I do know that, that it's it is. There's something that you have to say, okay, so wait, is God a God of war? Does he does he endorse this kind of behavior? Yeah, those those are good those are good debates to have. Clearly, David's a man who who pursues God. He pursues God's wisdom. He goes after God. He he asks God, "Should I go up against these people? Should I not? What should, you know? What's our what's our battle plan? How which one which battle plan are you behind?" And God God gives him wisdom because God doesn't withhold wisdom from people because they're about to because they're going to do something that he doesn't he doesn't agree with. You see if God was a God of freedom and love but he withheld wisdom and advice from people that are that are seeking it for wrong reasons then he's not a God of freedom. He's a, he's addicted. He's a dictator that says you're free to choose what I tell you to choose. You're free to cho- <laughs> parents do that, right? You're like, "Okay, you want to go uh here or here?" And you think, oh, I'm making a choice. But really, you're not. I mean, you are, but you're not free to make a choice. You're free to make a choice with these two options. But God is a God of absolute freedom. And he gives you the authority to make things happen. Jesus put it this way. And again, he's he's always my first filter. Jesus says, the power of life and death are in the tongue. Now, if you use your tongue to bring death to people, maybe literally, but like you cut them down, you destroy who they are, you take away their identity, God doesn't say, listen, okay, I I can't have you talking like that. I'm going to shut down your mouth because that's not the freedom. He's like, I'm giving you this authority. You get to do with it what you want. I will never leave you or forsake you. My hope my desire is that you stay so connected to me that everything you say actually sounds like me. That's what happened with the life of Jesus. Jesus was so in tune with with the presence of God that was available 24-7 that everything he spoke, he spoke as, as the Father. That's what he said, right? I speak, I only speak what the God tells me to what the Father tells me to speak. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Like it, we are so like he was one with the Father, and he says, this is the life that's available for everyone. I believe David understood that. I don't necessarily think David David went through with it 100% of the time. And so, yes, sometimes it's hard for me uh, to to read what you know how David used his freedom, but David went after after other nations. He went after them in war. He was a brilliant strategist. He defeated over and over and over again. But I don't think that God picks sides. And I don't think he said, well, David's the righteous one. He's my favorite. So I will, I will help him. And the Moabites, they're not my favorite because they, they, you know, worship Moab and Moab's a bad idol, so I'm going to let them die. No, as I've said many times in this podcast, I believe that the the enemy 
is given access to bring death, and he does so. He likes death. And if you are a nation that worships something other than Yahweh, someone other than the life-giving, hope-flowing God, then yeah, you're going to be a nation that ultimately moves toward death. Personal death, governmental death, uh, relational death, it's all good when it comes to the enemy. Just everybody dies. This is a good thing. he, he, He works at deep levels to bring death. And maybe some of these nations picked fights with David. Maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just know I just know the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his game plan. He is an amazing deceiver. And he will, he will influence people's perception of who God is because he wants God to look bad. And he does it. He does a real good job at it. At it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at my notes, and uh, I guess I covered a lot of them already. (laughs) When God brings you favor, it does look like God likes you more. (laughs) It does. And, And, I mean, if we're honest, right, we look around us and we see other people who worship God, like their lives look so easy. Their families look all together. They, you know, they're wealthy or they're at least wealthier than you. It's it's easy to look around and say, "See, God likes them better than me. Why is my life so hard, God? Why why am I struggling? Why don't I have a car? Why is my uh, bills not paid? Why you know uh, why 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 why? And and honestly, I don't have I don't have specific answers for you. I really don't. But I do know this, God is not running out of blessings up in heaven. God doesn't run out of favor. He doesn't have a bank account and he has to balance the books. God is all good all the time. He's all blessing all the time. And he loves the the reality of, of freedom. And he loves to give you that freedom. And many people choose to use their freedom to become victims of their circumstances. And he lets you do that. He lets you choose a way of death. He doesn't take that away because if he did, it would be unloving. It's it's awesome. Honestly, God is awesome to allow that to happen. And I know for some it's like, well, God should stop it if he really loved to God would stop the bad. God would stop the evil. God's love does stop the evil. Seriously, listen to this. You want God to come in as a dictator because you think God's on your side. You want God to walk in and slap somebody, slap the silly right out of them and tell them, listen, you know, I'm here because because <laughs> well, Bob asked me to come down here and set things right, so here I am. No. God's like, listen, my love will change the world. Love people. Change the world. My love does win. My love will stop evil. But I'm not going to come down and, and just crush people. 
because I love them. You can love them for me. Like I will love people through you. That's what I meant. I almost said you'll love people for me as though God is, again, out there somewhere and and we are just minions running around trying to trying to keep them happy. And that's not what we do. Oh, man. David was a complicated man. The, the last look at we've we basically have covered chapter eight. It's pretty cool. But again, this covers a lot of. A lot of time. It says David reigned over all of Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab was over the army. Jehoshaphat was the recorder. Zadok and Ahimelech were priests. Sierra was secretary. Benaiah. Benaiah. Oh man. Benaiah is a great guy. We'll get, <clears throat> we'll get some of him in the, toward the end of 2 Samuel. Which basically covers this time period as well. There's like a there's a chapter at the end of Second Samuel that's that's just basically a, a, a the greatest hits parade of of David's mighty men and Benaiah is one of those guys, and and we'll talk about him when we get there because because it's just fun. But Benaiah basically he oversaw two of Two groups of, of foreigners, the Karahites and the Pelethites, but they were they were they were the palace guards. They were the ones that were their sworn allegiances were to David. They were they were brought from foreign lands that had that had sworn their lives to protect David. And Benaiah oversaw them. Benaiah was one of David's mighty men, <clears throat> and Benaiah oversaw the palace guards. This was not just a couple dozen people; it was probably uh, about five hundred that would be in the palace at all the time, all the time. And Benaiah kept them trained, he kept them on duty, and he he oversaw their their uh, availability to do battle. It was probably during this time period, which again is is a it, remember the opening phrase of of chapter eight in the course of time. David still went out to battle with his men at uh, at the beginning of this. David would David was kind of like a William Wallace type of leader when it came to battles. He would be in he would lead the battle. He would ride out in front. He would he would be a part of the of the attack and after the you know the the volleys of of rocks from the slings after the volleys of arrows from the from the archers basically you'd end up in these in these melees and and you've seen it if you watch game of thrones uh you know they have similar mindsets you just you run in you do your best to blow people away and then ultimately you end up in this battle just stepping over bodies swinging swords blood soaked ground that turns into mud it's it's brutal that's what it is it's a brutal form of warfare and david david went to it and i imagine there was something raw and something real about it that that david appreciated he understood the 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 adrenaline and the passion that it took 
to keep fighting until the end, to drive the enemy away. And the enemy was always, uh, you know, intimidated because they knew David. He was a legend. But one of the one of the groups of people that, you know, hated him, of course, was the Philistines. And it goes all the way back to his killing of Goliath. And Goliath's brothers trained to also be warriors, to exact vengeance on David for killing their, their brother. Excuse me. And in the course of time, it, 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 I'll, I'll reference it again. I, I probably, I know, I know, I should have looked it up. I don't know why I didn't. But David, David was in a battle. David had gotten into a into a one-on-one fight with one of the uh, giants, probably because they had they saw David. You know, you kind of picture <laughs> picture on this brutal battlefield. The the giant is looking around and he sees David and he and he starts you know running over lumbering over I don't know how agile these giants were but there's some pretty agile football players that look pretty huge to me these this guy goes over to David and he starts swinging and David's swinging back at him and it turns he wants David's head I mean he is he is just every time their swords meet it it knocks David into a you know into a spin like he's he is in trouble and he knows it and he starts to run and the giant chases him and it says that he cornered David up against a rock. David had nowhere to go. He pulled back his spear and was going to pin David to the rock. Like it was it was over for David. And one of David's mighty men come in. I believe it was, uh, it was uh, Abishai. And he saves David. He kills the giant. He saves David, and it says after that, they they told David, you can no longer come into battle with us because you are the light of Israel, and what if the light of Israel goes out? So it's during this, this course of time that David is, is influenced, he is begged, by people I'm sure already had been begged by people on his council, but now his military, Joab, Abishai, Benaiah, Ephraim, these guys are, they, they, they sit down with David and they're like, we love you. Like we have, we have, we have covenant with you. We will die for you. But David, you can't keep coming into battle with us. Now, maybe David had lost the step. Maybe David, uh, you know, got tired a little easier. David's mind wasn't, you know, he had a th- literally a thousand things to keep in line with, with what's going on in his life. But the men begged him to stay at home. And we see in later, uh, later on, we'll see that that the plan was always, we will do the battle, and then we will call you in. We will get the brutal part out of the way, and when we when we are about to win, we will call you up. We'll send a messenger. You can ride in. You will get the victory. Now that's a sign of humility from his leadership. 
It's a sign a sign of humility for Joab and and Abishai and other mighty men to say, listen, um, David, I I don't need credit for this. I don't mind giving you credit for it. We just we just don't want you to die. We can't have you die. What you've set up as a as a national leader, what you've set up in this kingdom is so different from everywhere else in the world. Like we work and we battle to protect what you're doing and and nobody else gets it like you do. Nobody else can lead us like you can. What you're doing in the government is unheard of in the world. You are the light in a dark place. And if you die, all of this dies with you. David, this isn't about winning the the battle against the Philistines. We'll we'll beat them. This isn't about winning the battle against Moab. This we'll beat them. We're not worried about whether or not we win. You train us. We train each other. We know how to fight. We are intimidating. People bow down, you know, lay down their weapons before we even fight sometimes. They negotiate incredible deals in our favor because of who we are. We will win the battles, David, but you have to stay at home because if this thing goes south, if you get hit by some random rock from a sling, if if some arrow goes through you and you end up bleeding out on the battlefield, all of this disappears. Do you understand that, David? All the worship goes silent because somebody else will be king. All the treaties disappear. All the wealth that's coming into the nation. David, look at you. You have a billion dollars in gold sitting in a in a you know in a pile somewhere, waiting for some temple to be built. That that you you don't plan on like it's it's going to one of your kids. Do you understand that all of that disappears? Do you get that? And David agreed with his men. And he stopped going into battle. So this happened years before we get to, you know, chapter 10. This happened years. They set up this whole pattern of we go into battle, we win the battle, we bring you in, you ride into the city, you get the credit. We don't need the credit. We're not looking to make names for ourselves. Joab's probably thinking, well, maybe not a name for myself, but I might do a few things on the side <laughs> just just because I want to. But everyone knew that already. So David stopped going into battle sometime during chapter 8. But he reigned over everything. Everything's going great. And then we roll into uh, chapter 9. And in chapter 9, we see, we, we get a story in chapter 9, but it's also a representation of the way that David uh, operated. <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to take a break, and uh, I have no idea where I left off. Chapter 9, I think, is where we're at. So here we go. In chapter 9, we see, a, we see God, uh, oh, that's right, yes, we see a pattern of David. David, David. Uh, takes care of people. This is another aspect of David that's amazing. He not only takes care of the big thing, right? The big concepts, the 
we're going to build a government, you know, from the principles of heaven. We're going to build a government that represents God, heaven on earth, that looks like, you know, something that uh, light in the darkness. But he understands that to do that also involves working with individuals relationally. And this is a story where that happens. So everything's going great in David's life. Um, his generals are becoming legends, Joab and Abishai. Uh, and and there he's, he's, he's sitting at home. Remember, they've already asked him not to be in battle. So even though he's part of the plans in the in the fall and winter of every year, they get together, they talk about, you know, who's coming up against us, who has who has issued us an invitation to war. It's it's kind of interesting, but they would get those. Nations would be like, hey, next spring, we're taking you on, we're tired of paying you taxes, we're tired of of sending you our uh tributes of food and, and provisions. So uh, you know, we're going to take you on. Here's the valley we want to do it in. Da, da 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 da. Anyways, they talk about they put together all those strategies, but David would stay home. So David had other things to keep an eye on, and and he went to uh, his advisors and he's like, "Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul who I could show kindness to?" Wow, that's that's legendary. There was it's it's legendary because remember everyone expects the king to kill off the house of Saul David if if you if you remember from those podcasts over and over and over again David communicated to the nation and to the house of Saul the tribe of Benjamin I'm not going to kill you off I'm not taking away your lands I'm not taking back what Saul gave you I'm not turning you into paupers I'm not sending you into the wilderness I'm not sending you into exile. I'm not going to imprison you. Like he just constantly had to, had to remind them, I'm not like the other kings. I'm not going to do this stuff. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be different. So there's, there's a servant from the household of Saul called Zibia. Now Zibia was a, summoned to appear before David. Now he's summoned to appear before the king. And there's like his his thought process has to be, okay, David hasn't killed anybody from the house of Saul. David's taking care of the house of Saul. David hasn't hasn't sent us into exile. Why does David want to talk to me? Why does David want to talk to me? Why does David want to talk to me? He had to be wondering this. He gets all the way to the, we'll call it the throne room. I don't know where David met with people, but throne room, courtyard, uh, garden, wherever, wherever it was, he meets with David and the king says to him, so are you Zibia? Now, David knows that he's Zibia because he sent for him. I'm sure a guard or, or somehow he was escorted into the palace or the courtyard or the garden or the wherever. He knows that it's Zibia. So why is he asking the question? He asks the question because he's, it's, it's a, it's a way to honor Zibia. He doesn't just, he doesn't just give Zibia orders. He lets Zibia know, listen, you can now tell me who you are. How are you? Who are you? What's going on with you? And he says, I'm at your service. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm loyal to you, David. I know I serve the house of Saul. He's, he hasn't served the house of David. He's not, he didn't transfer his, his, uh, his job description he left the palace when Saul died, 
but is willing to come back into service under David. I am at your service. This is this again just just speaks to the culture that David had created. This man wasn't fearful of of serving David. He wasn't fearful that David would would kill him, although technically I'm sure way in the back of his mind he knew it was possible. And the king says, "Is there is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness?" Now, this is this is again, David David communicated the big concept. I'm different. I don't kill people uh, from the house of Saul. I'm not going to. But David goes, David goes after like the individual as well. David reaches out. He's like, is there a way that I could show kindness to the house of Saul? And Zibia says, well, yes, there is one, the son of Jonathan, who's lame in both his feet. So, so here, is, here is David. He's remembering his promise to Jonathan, his covenant with Jonathan. He told Jonathan, I will show kindness to your house. And that meant all of Saul's family. He doesn't just say, is there anyone alive from the house of Jonathan? He says, is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? He's like, yeah, there's one. There's one. He's lame. He's Jonathan's son. David's David's not only remembering his, his promise, but he's showing his loyalty to Jonathan. He's showing his his uh, his follow through, I guess you could say, as a leader, he doesn't just make a promise and then say, "Well, listen, I'm really, really busy. I can't get around to it today." He follows through on his promises. He doesn't say, "Well, technically, I was nice to everybody. It's okay." He's like he's he's personally saying, "For Jonathan's sake, because of the of the covenant we made, because of my loyalty." To Jonathan, because of my friendship with Jonathan, because it was a promise I made in my integrity, is there somebody from the house of Saul that I could show kindness to? Now, I think, I I, I know, uh, I, I was, again, I, don't, I forget how many weeks ago we did this, but I talked about losing Jonathan and, and the, the intensity of the friendship that the two of them had. And I think that, that, you know, David had friends. I think David had people he could talk to. He just didn't have that one person he could talk to. That I mean, I I, I kind of understand that, and, and uh, you know, not not to make the story about me, but just on a personal illustration level, like I don't have, I don't have like one friend. I have I have different friends that I do different things with that I talk about. It's not that I'm I won't talk about certain things, but there's some people I'm just more comfortable talking about certain things with some and not with others, and that's fine. And I think David was like that. It wasn't like David was a lonely man. But he generally didn't have that super close friend. But he he remembered Jonathan. And he's like, I'll I, I promised him. I promise I know he's not around. I know he's not alive. It doesn't matter. I'm gonna do what's right. 
the integrity of my covenant with Jonathan is that I show kindness to his family. Is there anyone around and from the house of Saul that I could still show kindness to? And Zibia says, yes, there is actually. Is He's actually a son of Jonathan. And so, so he sends for him. He's like, oh, where is he? He says, well, he's at the house of, again, I can't, I can't enunciate these words, Makar, son of Ahamir in Ledabar. I don't know how to say those words. So he sends for him. Now, the fact that Zibia told him the house that had been housing, you know, it, it, they, these are from the tribe of Benjamin. These people are loyal to the house of Saul. These are people that could be seen as a threat to David. But Zibia trusts David's heart. He trusts his desire for restoration. He trusts his desire for, for follow through. He trusts the integrity of his promise not to kill off the house of Saul. And he tells him where he's at. He doesn't say, I'll go get him. He doesn't say, let me bring him to you, to you king. He says, this is where he's at. This is, this is a big deal. Again, culturally, there's a huge shift in this nation regarding how, how government is done. And David is the one who brought that. So David sends for him. And, and it was uh, a Mephibosheth. Mentally, it works out really well. And then my tongue just doesn't work. Mephibosheth. Oh, man. Well, you can look it up. It's in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. So feel free to come up with your own. Annunciation, or maybe just the right one because I clearly don't have it. So when he sends for him, he comes again, speaking to the culture that David created. Mephibosheth shows up and he bows down to pay honor to David. And David says, basically, are you Mephibosheth? And he's like, yes, at your service. In other words, I will do anything you ask of me. But David tells him an interesting thing. He's like, don't be afraid. Why? Because it would have been very natural for him to feel fear, to not know what's going to happen to me. Why am I here? What's going on? Why did David send for me? David's like, don't be afraid. I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And then he does this amazing thing, right? He brings restoration to the family. I'm going to restore the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And, and, and it's going to go to you. And you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth, just like he lays prostrate on the ground. He's like, what in the world did I do that you would notice a dead dog like me? Now, part of that is the way that uh, the way that he was trained to show honor to the king, right? Because that's the way Saul would want to be treated. 
Saul wanted people to grovel in front of him. He wanted to feel powerful. He wanted he was the overlord, the warrior king, the dictator, the tyrant, the one who always carried the spear and would throw it at you if you crossed him. Like Mephibosheth, he's bowing down to David because that's all he knows to do. And he calls himself a dog. He can't believe the kindness that's being shown to him. He's restoring things. He's giving him provision. He's showing him support. He's showing. He's giving him family connection and community. He's like, you're going to eat at my table like one of my sons. You're going to be surrounded and part of conversations. Like table conversations are so different than what they are here in the Western world, right? Our meals tend to be relatively short in comparison. Family meals for them would often go on for hours because the discussion that's where you would discuss things. Uh, th- sometimes things would get very animated, but things could be said at the dinner table. It was like a free speech zone. There was no fear. It was you were able to make your point and throw out different ideas. This was this was David offering all of this back to Meshivetheth because of his connection and his covenant with Jonathan. It's amazing. And in doing this, David David is showing like he he's showing that he's he's not only successful with the nation, but he's successful with people and he's he's successful as a friend. David is loving as a leader. And it impacts the nation, and it impacts people, and it and it impacts his friends. In other words, he's authentic all the way through. He's authentic all the way through. And David's David's life is going so well. The king summons Zibia, Saul's the, the first guy that came up, right? Saul Stewart, and he says, okay, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. In other words, all these lands that were belonged to Saul, I'm giving to you. Now, normally, that would have all belonged to David. David didn't take those lands. He didn't work those lands. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't, lo- you know, he didn't, he wasn't selfish. Remember, he had moved the capital city most of the lands that would have belonged to Saul would have been back at Gibeah. It would have probably surrounded this, you know, all around that city were lands and property that belonged to Saul so that when Saul stood on the walls, he could look out and say, all of this belongs to me. He's like, I've given it all back to Mephibosheth. I'm sorry. Oh, he says, but I want you and your sons and your family to work the land so that your master's grandson will be provided for. I want his families. I want his connections. I want him to be rich. I want him to know that he doesn't need to depend on everybody else because he's lame. He couldn't work the land himself. 
Both his feet were crushed. If you remember, his nursemaid scooped him up and ran him out of the ran him out of the palace when they found out that Saul and and Jonathan and his other two sons had all died in battle, and the Philistines were coming. She scooped him up and ran, and she tripped and she crushed his feet. And he goes, so you and your sons are going to work the land. Now that also meant that his him and his family would be cared for because part of working the land was. You you got wealthy. I mean, if it was if the if the land if there was enough land, you were wealthy, but you also provided for the master. So it was kind of like a surf surf king serfdom uh, mindset. Somebody the owner of the land would get wealthy, but you also were provided for from the land. So he's providing again for Zibia, and it says that Zibia had fifteen sons and twenty servants. So Zibia was no like lowly little little dude who was working life by himself he had a he had 15 sons and 20 servants and the sons would all work the land and the servants were i mean there was this was a this was a pretty big deal because this was also a lot of land and then zibia said to the king your servant will do whatever the lord king commands his servant to do so meshivapheth ate at david's table like one of the king's sons and he had his uh, he had his own son that also ate at the table. And Zibia's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And he lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was still lame in both feet. So even though all the land was farmed and the the herds were were taken care of outside of Jerusalem. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he continued to eat at David's table. Now, listen, he didn't have to do that. He could have. He could have moved out. He could have went to where the lands were. He could have said, "I want to keep an eye on my land." It would have made perfect sense. But the fact that he lived in Jerusalem and ate at the David at David's table on a regular basis speaks to the culture that David had created. It speaks to the culture that David had uh, around, uh, created around not only just just his, the government, like it wasn't just a political thing. It wasn't just for show. It literally went all the way through the household of David, all the way to the dinner table. David created a culture that said, I will restore, I will show kindness, I will bring provision, I'm not going to turn back on my promises. This is pretty big. Now, once again, I don't think David was a great father, but David's sons had good moms because a number of them were also in the priesthood. Some of them were worship leaders. It was it, it, there was there was an this was an amazing time in David's life. This was an amazing atmosphere for David to live in. And and the picture of this kingdom, the light that it was in the darkness, the way that he illustrated to the world, this is how you can lead. You don't have to be a dictator to have power. You can have powerful people around you and give them freedom to lead and be amazing. These things were revolutionary in the day. 
and David led that revolution. It's it's pretty. He's he's complicated. He's layered. He has got it all going on, and yet in it all, his heart, in his heart, he still wants to stay connected to God. That twenty four seven worship going outside of his his palace, the opportunity to walk through that tent, and to spend a few moments in the or a few hours in God's presence. This is this is where it all I think this is where all his help comes from. It's pretty awesome. He's pretty awesome. I think you guys are pretty awesome for sticking with the story as long as you have. I hope you have a fabulous day. I'll see you again next week. Oh, next week. Next week we start with one of the big ones. Oh. Yeah, don't miss it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.